This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Ethan Kanan, author of two short story collections and five novels. He teaches creative writing at University of Iowa and has a medical degree from Harvard. His latest novel, A Doubter's Almanac, chronicles the life of Milo Andret, a brilliant mathematician and terrible alcoholic. The novel explores genius and terror, ambition and failure. As Milo exceeds in his mathematical pursuits, he often fails as a husband, father, teacher, and friend. We began the interview discussing how Kanan begins a novel. I've been teaching for a long time, and uh, I've learned in my 20 years of teaching about 15 things about writing. One of the more more important ones is that it's easier, it's much easier to plot your way into an idea than it is to idea your way into a plot. Uh, so I never start with an idea or a question. I always start with misbehavior. That's that's what makes books go, is people acting wrong. That's what books are. That's what novels are, is mis- is, is, mis- is uh compendiums of misbehavior and its consequences. So I just sort of put people out there and make them do bad things and see what happens. And then and then the question comes. Like, I didn't even know this guy, the narrator or the ostensible narrator of this book, was going to be a mathematician until uh, 30 or 40 pages into it. So did you start with a certain misbehavior? Yeah. This is the only book I've... So I've written seven books now. This is the only book I've ever written in which the first scene or the scene I started with remained the first scene in the book and the scene this is a scene of this guy looking out the window when his old rival drives up with his old lover who's now the lover of the rival and so the narrator sees that and goes through a sort of elaborate set of fakery to show how robust he is and blah 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 so that's sort of the initial misbehavior so how did Uh, the math element come into it so it starts with this guy misbehaving then with the tendency i think when you write a novel is to do something and then well, we step back to background. It's kind of an old, there's an old story saw, there's an old story formula called AB, I call it A, uh, it's actually, it wasn't my term, but Alice Adams told me this one, called ABDCE, Action, Background, Development, Climax, Ending. And it's a kind of a novelist's fallback, or a short story writer's fallback. You start with action that not only gets the reader into the story, but also gets the writer into the story. Once that action is out there, then you do the B, which is background. It sounds as though I, I do these things intentionally. I don't, but I think that's how, how people t- naturally write down stories. So I started to just, I, the scene of misbehavior, then some scene of well, where did this guy come from? And sort of exploratory. I didn't know where he was from or what he did. Um, and so he goes back to Michigan, his childhood in Michigan. And then um, that comes forward. He, he lies his way into graduate school. And that's sort of the second piece of misbehavior. That's sort of, uh, at that point, I kind of knew I had a story that he would uh, so easily lie, so easily fabricate things to advance himself. And the book, you know, in a lot of ways, then later, the, the idea entered my mind as these things began to happen about ambition and the price of ambition or the cost of ambition. Uh, but that was not, certainly not anything that drove it. It was something that grew out of it. Do you think because in some ways his he was in a no-win relationship with his math that his addiction mirrored that? Like in some way he needed something that was also a no-win situation that wasn't math? Interesting. I like that no-win situation. Everyone's in a no-win situation really with any kind of creativity. 
you know, all books are imperfect. All books, you know, have their own sine wave of hope and despair. You kind of learn that over a course of writing many of them. And that you have to sort of trans, you sort of transform your hope for the win into sort of reverence for the truth, reverence for complex grief and sadness and happiness and ecstasy that fill plenty of lives, fill all our lives. I think when I was younger, I used to try to write books that were beautiful and that would people would love. And now, as I get older, I try to write books that I feel are true. It's, it's part of that no-win thing, because you realize you can't win, so you might as well be honest, right? So what's the truest thing for you about this book? truest thing for me about this book is kind of what you just said, the no-win thing, that any kind of endeavor is a no-win situation. Life is a no-win situation. Uh, you can only, you can't win it, you can only have good innings, put it that way. <laughs> and he has a few good innings and a few bad innings. I think that's the way it turns out for most people. You know, we all face the death of our parents, our own deaths, illness. We also all, or most of us, get to uh, walk out in the woods and ski in Aspen. So that's, I guess, the truth. All novels are about writing a novel. <laughs> Which is, you know, and this, this novel sure is about writing a novel. It's about the difficulty of, of trying some useless thing that takes a gargantuan feat of discipline and uh, hopefulness and, you know, hoping for the wind, although you know the wind is not going to take place. There's no such thing as the wind. And yet that's what drives you. That's what drives many writers, both an adoration for the art and a hope of writing something great. It never wholly succeeds. So I read somewhere that you said this was the hardest book that you've written. Is that because you're more conscious of these things, or was it just the actual mechanics of getting this done? Well, the first 300 pages are pretty easy for me. Or I, I might not be dividing it properly, but the first half of the book was pretty easy for me. So I never have a good time writing, but I had a, not, not a terrible time writing that. There's enough misbehavior and enough, enough wild things this guy does that it was a pleasure to write. And you know, he was rapacious enough and uh, lawless enough that it was, it was a pure pleasure to imagine myself that guy. Second half was much harder. And also the, the third, the, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth time through it, I, I had to get the math right. So I just guessed on all the math most of the way through. And then um, ended up finding, of all things, a retired mathematician in my little town of Iowa City who happened to be a topologist, which is what Milo Andret is. And so this insanely generous man, his name is John Simon, and I couldn't thank him enough in the back of the book, read this you know, 600-page manuscript and uh, wrote me about 50 to 60 pages of notes on the math. And I spent about a year getting the math right. And I put all the math in and I wanted to make sure that it was bulletproof. Because as a doctor, I don't know if you know, but I, I went to medical school and I'm a physician. As a doctor, I hate reading novels in which the, the medicine is wrong. So I, I just could not write a novel in which the math was wrong. Because I knew that some mathematicians would read it somewhere and be upset. So I spent a year getting the math right. And then I, I was so proud of myself. I got all the, everything was correct. And with John Simon's help, I got all the topology correct down to the this and that. And. I said it to my editor, she said, God, what did you just do? You got to take all this out. Because <laughs> I realized I had done that thing, which was um, happens to a lot of people as they do research, is they don't, there's a lie to research. When you know too, when you know too little, you tend to put in too much to show that you know. Uh, so I had, I had done that. So I spent, then I spent about three or four months taking all that back out. And after I spent a year putting it in, <laughs> 
but it's kind of like you know jujitsu. If you're if you're a black belt, you can walk down the street. You don't necessarily punch and kick everybody, but you don't get into fights because people can sense that you know what you're doing. I, I hope that there's that there's a sort of confidence in the mats that comes from having it. I learned it once. That still exists in the book, even though most of the math has been taken out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Ethan Kanan, author of seven novels, including A Doubter's Almanac. So you said earlier that it's not always pleasurable to sit down and write a book. In, in fact, it's, it's painful. So why not just be a doctor? I think you're understating what I said. I said it's mostly miserable. Why not just be a doctor? You know why? Because of that ambition thing. I was a doctor, and I, but I realized that I, I liked to write. I mean, sometimes I don't like to start to write, but sometimes when it's going, I like it. But that's different. from I knew that if I didn't need the money from finishing a book, I would never finish a book. I mean, you're looking at that. Writing is one thing. Finishing a 200,000-word creation in which characters have to have the same names at the beginning and the end, the things have to be consistent, the time has to work, it has to be has to be interesting to the reader, has to be surprising, it can't be didactic, you can't know what you're talking about. If you because if you understand what your novel's about, it's going to be a dull novel. You have to write at sort of the edge of what you don't understand. So it's pretty it's pretty brutish and difficult. And I knew I, if I was earning a nice living as a surgeon somewhere or as a medical doctor, then I would never finish a book. And I made that decision when I was in my, I can't remember exactly, but probably in my early, mid-30s. And I'd published a couple of books. I published three books at that point when I walked away from medicine. And it was a hard decision then. It was a decision I would never make now, now that I have three children and, you know, college tuitions and mortgages and all that. So luckily, (laughs) luckily, I, I say for myself, I made that decision when I was young and careless. But I'm happy I did. I'm as misery as miserable as it is. I love, I love the endeavor, or I'm in love with the endeavor. It's an it's it's an abusive relationship. I mean, it keeps beating me up, and I keep saying, "I'm sorry, I love you." To me, I felt in the whole book because it opens kind of with um, Milo's one of his first sort of recognitions of his talent and his focus is he makes this chain out of this piece of wood, this long chain that's just one piece. And I just kept asking myself throughout the book, isn't he really just an artist? Isn't math just a form of artistry? And, Absolutely. And in some ways, it just made me understand his drinking and everything else as an artist more than a mathematician. Well, I understand drinking in a different way. I mean, that's one is why I have a very physiological medical explanation for it because I've seen it and I've seen what it does to people and I've seen how how it is a physical disease. I've seen people in their 20s dying of the kind of cirrhosis that Milo dies of in his 60s. You know, having that huge bloated body that comes from liver failure. I'm talking about like 18, 19 year old kids, you know, 25 year olds who cannot stop and drink six bottles of vodka every single day and cannot stop. They're not doing that because uh, art is difficult. They're doing it because there is some 
physiological dependence that switches on in alcoholics and immolates them, at least in the bad ones. So one can make psychological conclusions from it, or I tend to think of it as just this the guy who was trying something hard and he also happens to have this bad disease. It takes him over. And one of the things it does, one of the things alcoholism does in this late stage is it disinhibits you. It takes away all your social inhibitions. You get something called hepatic encephalopathy, which means the sort of the brain disease caused by liver failure. And you become you become violent, you become labile, you your moods and anger is all over the place. You forget things, you can't walk right. It's all the things that happen to him. It's you know I loved what I learned in medicine and just not in this, the medical things, but just seeing that side of the world, seeing the people that most of us never see. To be able to write about what that does was a real pleasure to me. In terms of this idea that Milo is chasing, which is an idea of proof, and you went to med school, which is very, there's questions and answers that are very clear, but there's not in writing. How do you engage your brain with both of those? How do you, do you find peace? <laughs> well, interestingly, the better doctor you are, the more informed you are about medicine, the more you realize there are no answers there either. There are very few. It's highly oversimplified. I mean, look at things like, not to, not to put your readers to sleep too quickly or your listeners to sleep too quickly, but you know, this idea like hormone replacement therapy for menopausal women or postmenopausal women, which was everybody was given that for like 10, 15 years. And then suddenly they realized, whoops, that's actually hurting everybody. So they stopped giving it. And, you know, who knows what they're going to realize five years from now. So there's actually one of the most difficult things about me when I was in medicine was the ambiguity of it. As if, you, if you were really stringent about it, if you were really an, uh, a devotee of the truth of medicine, you couldn't act. You couldn't give anything because there's all kinds of money and pressure from drug companies to give their newest drugs and the fabric fabricated studies and bamboozling the statistics and it really if you have any kind of purity of motive you can't stay, you can't go forward <laughs> but then you got you know 25 patients you got to see that day so you got to kind of go forward and that's how the sort of medical industrial complex takes hold of medicine so there actually is a hell of a lot of ambiguity in that field believe it or not there are very few drugs that really work interestingly morphine being one of the few that is a great 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 drug but, but it's been around for centuries. In terms of like dealing with the difficulty and ambiguity of writing and the no win, as you put it, situation of it, I was well prepared. <laughs> this is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Ethan Kanan, author of seven novels, including A Doubter's Almanac. This interview was recorded via Skype. Do you feel like you still learn something about the craft, and did you learn something from this novel? What a great question. Yeah, I had a little revelation when I was teaching. I was, I was in the middle of the throes of this book, which was killing me. And uh, it was just a long, complicated novel with a lot of things to make work and a lot of time sequences to make work. I forget what I was even lecturing on. I, I, was, I was reading somebody's story and not lecturing, but you know, pontificating the way professors do. And I suddenly realized, oh, my God, I'm saying all this. I, and not only this, but everything I've said this whole semester, I've been talking to myself. It's like it was the problem I was having in the book. I was lecturing this kid about how we should answer it. And I was so stupid that I didn't even hear that I was talking to myself. And, like, you know, I wish I could remember what the issue was. But, you know, yeah, you learn something from every book. Um, one of the things I learned from this book is the next book I write, I want it to be short and sweet and everybody's nice in it. 
Well, it's interesting because when you were saying earlier about how you did so much research and you put all this math in, I was thinking, I bet he's taught about not to do that, but he just couldn't see it himself. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, you can't see your own work. That is the thing. That is the problem. If you have to say there's what, what makes writing difficult, I would say that is the gist of it, is that you can't see what you have done because you know how the story ends. You don't know the clues you're leaving for the, for the reader. Uh, so you never you never can see your own work. I, I personally get a chance, like one chance to see it maybe 10 years later. Um, I just happened to read um, 20 or 30 pages from my last novel about a, two or three months ago. And I thought some of it was pretty good, actually. It was a complete surprise to me that some of it seemed pretty good. But there were lines I, that were so bad, I wanted oh, I can't believe I missed them on the first 20 times through it. But, you know, you just don't know what you're doing. Literally, you do not know what you are doing. You do not know what effect your words have on a reader for all kinds of reasons. And readers are, novels and stories are complex interactions between the history of the reader and the history of the writer. So there's that level of complexity to it. You don't know what, you know, what does a mean husband, a husband who's mean to his wife, mean to a woman who's been treated badly by her husband? It means one thing. What does it mean to a, a womanizing man? It means another thing. So there's all kinds of levels of complexity, let alone before you even get into just the basic facts of, you know, prose and clarity and the different ways sentences can be read. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, because I feel like a book is really a moment in time. I mean, for you, this is a moment of eight years in time, but it's still the Ethan Kanan of today, not the Ethan Kanan of 30 years ago or 40 mm -hmm. years from now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's interesting because it lasts for so long, um, but it's still a moment. Do you agree with that? Or yeah, I do agree with that. I agree that when I look when I look back on some of my all my earlier work embarrasses me, you know, down to the things I wrote ten minutes ago. <laughs> Perhaps that's an overstatement, but. You know, the difficulty of writing is that you're expected to be wise from your early career. You're expected to be wise when you publish your 20, a book as a 28-year-old, 30-year-old. And you can't be. Uh, I know a lot of my students are really terrified of trying to imagine what a marriage is like, for example, or trying to ima imagine what it's like to have children or to see death. Uh, and they're terrified of that, and rightfully so, because they're modest. They don't, they, don't, they don't want to presume to tell people about things they themselves don't know about. And luckily, writing is one of the few... Well, it's it's one of the it's one of the relatively few fields that one does get better as one gets older. One's audience might shrink, but one gets closer to the truth, I think, in later work. The truth being, you know, the more complete understanding of life. There's just no other way it can be. That's why in some ways math seemed like it would be such a comfort because there is an answer. I mean, maybe not to that high level of math, but two plus two as an answer. Math is kind of easy, really, if if you have if you can concentrate. It's really just it's just this whole series of two plus twos. I mean, that's all computers do, and they can concentrate very well. So, the math in that sense is quite easy. What's interesting about math, math, most mathematicians will tell you this, and this was something I had to kind of imagine and kind of think my way into or or imagine my way into is that. So, what is math? You know, math is not calculation. People aren't mathematicians who can just multiply numbers really fast. Or, or there are people who are who are pure calculators. There's some famous examples through history that are just stunning things. You know, people who can multiply 30-digit numbers in their heads and things like that. So what is math? So what does it mean to be good at math? In a way, it's 
it's very similar to being good at science. It's an it's the idea. It's not the ability to execute. It's the ability to innovate. It's the ability to discover the new approach, to come up with the idea that oh well, of course, maybe time isn't constant. Maybe just time seems like a constant to us because at our speed, it pretty is pretty much is constant. That's what math is. It's it's, it's one of the great. One of the great, I mean, when you study a little bit of math, you suddenly understand that, God, you know, there's this debate whether math is discovered or invented. And I really feel wholeheartedly that math is discovered because it, there's, you just get the sense that you are seeing something that's unequivocally true. One of the great things about math is that you can come from a problem from, you can come at a problem from any, from 55 different fields and you will always get the same answer, which is crazy and feels like the proof of God to me. Uh, that it's so consistent no matter how you what what path you take there you will always arrive at the same answer but the 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 genius of mathematics is figuring that path it's not executing it's not multiplying it's not writing the proofs it's it's understanding that it's making the difficult simple it's not it's not math is not doing the difficult thing it's math is making the difficult thing simple that's where the innovation comes in or math is making the undoable thing doable. That's where imagination comes in. Is there any writer that you would say has influenced you? Like if I can kind of think back chronologically through my life, you know, I didn't want to. I had no interest in being a writer. I, didn't, I wasn't. That wasn't what I was interested in. I wanted to be an engineer when I went to college, and that's when I first came. Uh, my roommate was reading this book called "The Correct The Stories of John Cheever." I just had to pick it up and started reading it. And uh, boy, Cheever was a gifted writer. He, he could make. He was a rhythmic writer. His sentences run on these beautiful, beautiful rhythms without sort of the chewy words that a lot of other writers use. He used a lot of Latinate, you know, less, less beautiful, less, um, what's the word, less um, visceral words than a lot of poets. But he did it all with rhythm. And he, I read that. I thought, oh, my God, I want to do this. I want to be a writer. I'm a screw engineer. I don't want to do this anymore. So he was sort of the first. And then I read two books in a row by this guy named... Saul Bellow, and the first book was Dangling Man, which was his either his first or second book, and it was sort of a miserable, poor me story of a constricted, wretched man. And then I read The Adventures of Augie March, which was an explosion of invention, and not my favorite of his books in the end, but such it was such an inspiration to me to see that someone had gone from writing this sort of tame, frightened prose to writing this volcanic prose. And that's, that, that, that kind of breakthrough was possible for writers. So that was a real influence on me. Later in my life, I came across writers like Alice Munro and William Trevor, story writers who really were, um, Munro especially, just, just sort of knocked me out with the depth of her imagination, with the way she sort of, and early on in her career, I don't know if you've read her early work, but it's very traditional, very, 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 very good and very difficult to do. The stories are very traditional. They have conflicts. They rise to a climax about two-thirds of the way through, and then they fall away and then she just like pulled a thread out of all that and started organizing it with a sense of dream logic sort of an emotional logic in which the logic of the story mimics the logic of the mind that was a revelation to me you think of an example from this novel or it could be another one where something changed a lot from the first draft and can you kind of describe that i remember a scene in my last book in america america a scene in which um a kid is, is sort of forced to drive off the road by another driver in the car they stage an accident this kid doesn't know it's happening and the other the other guy forces him to drive into a tree 
And I remember working on that scene, working on that scene, working on that scene, and having a lot of trouble with it. In in those in the number of years since then, I've sort of come up with my own theory. I wish I had learned at the time of action of writing action, which which I call pulling through action rather than pushing through action. So I uh, I wish I could rewrite that scene now, knowing what I do know now about pulling through action rather than pushing through action. Where do you write? I write in a little shed behind my house. It's an old, uh, it was the old carriage house back in this house was built in the 20, 1920s. And they had, they had a carriage house and I fixed it up myself, put floors and, and windows in it and <clears throat> sheetrocked it and all that stuff and put it in air conditioning, which you need. <laughs> and that's where I write. I write standing up. Before it was hip, I had a stand-up desk. I, for a while, I had a little treadmill underneath it, but not a treadmill, what do you call it? An elliptical trainer underneath it. But uh, that became untenable because <laughs> your head is bobbing up and down as you write. I write out there. I write for about an hour. I write in the morning because if I don't write in the morning, I just it hangs over me miserably all day. That's something I still need to do. And I'm a one-idea writer. I write about three or 400 words. I write them pretty fast. And then I put it aside and I try not to think about it. I actively try not to think about my writing when I'm not doing it. That's one of the things I've learned. Because that, that sort of libidinal energy is what creates invention. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I remodel houses. I build things. I make, I'm a woodworker. I bought a little tiny house next to us about five or six months ago. And actually, there, I, was in it, I was in it a few months ago <laughs> working in the basement. And it, when the house caught fire, uh, a lithium battery that was on a charger ignited and caught all the rugs and walls on fire. And I didn't know it. I was in the basement. I was able to crawl out. And it was quite a big fire. <laughs> And a lot of damage, but nobody got hurt. And I'm now I'm, re, I'm now I'm re remodeling it because a lot of it was destroyed in the fire. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife. And I used to when I you know my wife and I met when I was in college when we were both in college, and I you know and I was sort of wanting to be a writer. That was that was uh, sort of the end of my college time, <clears throat> and I was already had this idea that I wanted to be a writer. And I would show her things, and I would show her like you know every paragraph. Uh, or every half paragraph in this sort of childish way. And now I, I wrote this whole book without showing it to her. Then I showed her the whole book at the end. But I was despondent. I thought that, that uh, I would have to give the money back to Random House and give up. And she read it and said, no, 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 it's good. So she, she kept me going. How have you dealt with rejection? Because I don't really send stories out. I don't really write many stories anymore. And I, all the books I write tend to get published. So it's not so much rejection anymore as is the lack of complete acceptance. You know, you wish everybody would love your work. It's one of the things all writers have to learn to deal with. And I, it forces you in a good way to devote yourself to what you feel to be true, to devote yourself to the art, not to devote yourself to popularity, to, to book sales or nice reviews, but to devote yourself to the few readers out there who really connect with you. And it's incredibly satisfying to find somebody like that and to know that you've written what you feel to be true and you've touched somebody who also feels that to be true. It's like falling in love. You find a reader and when a reader finds a writer. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word? Well, that's a good question. I don't think I have a favorite word. I was just saying some words the other day to my wife, but that's a tricky one. I have to pass on that. Let me think about it. I don't want to be unfair to some of the lesser known words. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Ethan Kanan, author of the novel The Doubter's Almanac. This interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. 
You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The First Draft music is produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.